Welcome to the You Join podcast where we tell stories about grassroots advocates and the victories they achieve. In this episode, we talked to Dan Jacobson, the State Director of Environment California, one of the people and organizations that helped lead the effort towards passing the 100% renewable energy bill in California this year. Dan starts off this podcast by talking about some of the legislative background that led up to the ability to pass the 100% renewable law. And then after that, he gets into talking about some of the players, who are the coalition groups, who are the people that were supporting it and who are the people opposing it, and then gets into some of the more nitty-gritty about how they actually executed this and what were some of the strategies and tactics that they used to pass this law. Enjoy. Uh, we'd like to just start with some background on you and you know how you got into this and why, why you do this kind of work. Yeah. Um, well, thanks again for having me on, and I appreciate the chance to talk about uh, SB100. Um, I've been doing this work for about 30 years and started when I graduated from college, originally from New York City. And when I graduated from college, I moved around the country a lot doing different organizing projects, working on recycling campaigns in Massachusetts, uh, stopping offshore drilling in Florida, uh, clean air programs in Texas and um, Ohio and Missouri, uh, and then uh, made my way out to California in 1999. Um, and started to lobby out here on, in, on environmental issues and um, uh, helped start Environment California in 2002 and have been doing that ever since. That's great. And so I, what is it about this work that keeps you going and keeps you doing it? Um, that's a good question. I think there's a couple of things. One is, I mean, um, Almost every day we come out with new reports that show how urgent this work is and how it's impacting both the um, environment and sort of the health of the planet, but I think just as importantly, the health of people. And uh, I think there's a real urgency to get both of those things right. And um, it's also, I think, important to take on battles that a lot of people aren't taking on um, and to be able to win campaigns for future generations. So how, how did this give it, I, I would, I'd like to hear the backstory on how the momentum got built. Typically, you know, these legislative victories are never a sort of one legislative session, one year process. So what led up to all of this? So, you know, there's really two parts to the story. The first is, um, uh, you know, really the deregulation law that was passed in California in 1996 that went into effect in 1999, 2000, that uh, groups like Enron then started to game the electrical system in California, so much so that it, um, you know, they were jacking up the prices so high that they were causing rolling blackouts in the state. And some of your viewers or some of your listeners might remember that in um, 2000, 2001, the state of California, you know, sixth largest economy in the world, was having these rolling blackouts that were caused in part by these fires that were impacting um, our transmission lines, but just as much by these outrageous prices that these unscrupulous market manipulators had engaged in. And the, you know, it was a crisis situation for the governor. And their first reaction is, let's build 
60 new fossil fuel power plants in the state as soon as we can and get those up and running. And that'll be our way to deal with that. And um, a set of consumer advocates and environmental advocates came in and said, you know, there's got to be a at least a different way. Maybe it's a better way, but a different way to look at this problem. And we saw that the state at the time had a ridiculously low percentage of renewable power that it was using, but that the potential for renewable power was obviously incredibly high. And that's when the first law was passed that's known as the Renewable Portfolio Standard, which is a little bit of a technical term, but basically incentivizes utilities um, to go for low-cost solar and low-cost wind power um, here in California. And that the more power that they purchase, obviously by supply and, and demand, the cheaper the price will go. So the first law was passed by Senator Byron Schur in 2002, which required that the utilities um, create a portfolio um, and that 20% of all the electricity that they were generating in the state had to come from clean energy sources um, as it was defined in that bill. Um, and that was probably the most important point because if that hadn't worked and if those market, you know, if, if, if that market hadn't matured and it, it was really a gamble that the advocates took at that point because we were betting that everything that we'd always been hearing to that time was going to be correct. And that bet was basically if you force the utilities to buy these renewables, that the, that the renewable industry will compete and drive the price down and will have an abundance of renewable power. And that was something that had been in textbooks for a long time. And, and people had always said, oh, if there was only some way to do it. And the law really did it, you know, in a very safe, you know, an economically safe way by giving the utilities a lot of um, ways that they could get out of it if, you know, the prices were too expensive or, or you know, what have you. But that didn't happen. And what we saw coming out of that law is that the utilities were purchasing the power and the power was able to be delivered. And as the more power got delivered and as the utilities bought more of the power, the prices continued to go down. So we had sort of a downward spiral. Prices were going down, more power was coming onto the market, and it made for the next step. Then a couple of years later, Senator Joe Simidian from the same area um, introduced a bill that said, well, let's get to 30% clean energy by 2030. And that bill, you know, went through the same regulatory process and hearings and discussions and debate, but it was ultimately signed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And again, the steps were working. The, the process was working. Uh, a couple of years later, Senator DeLeon, who was the Senate president pro tem at the time, or just about to become the Senate president pro tem at the time, introduced a bill, SB 350, that did a number of things. But one of the things that it did was ensure that California would get to a 50 percent by 2030. And that part of the bill passed. And again, the, the, the whole process worked. And just to be clear and to make sure that your viewers and your listeners understand what SB 100 would do is in essence two parts. The first part is it would say, let's bump that 50% up to 60% and still keep that timeline of 2030. And then it says for that remaining 40%, the state will come in and set a goal of how to get that last 40%. And we will no longer be under just the strict, strict guidelines that the RPS has set up for us, but will allow any form of energy that's a you know, that doesn't contribute to climate change. So um, hydropower would be allowed if there were any 
nuclear power plants here in the state at, that would be operating by 2030, of which the two that we have will be closed by then, that that would count. Um, and, it, you know, and so the it, it's, it then becomes the goal of the state to get to that last 40%. And I think that's really important. So the bill itself says, let's go now from 50 to 60% using that same process that we've really had in place for since 2002. So a program that people and business and labor unions and utilities and customers are incredibly familiar with. And then let's, by the time that we hit 2030, let's then set the goal to get to that 100%. That's great. So it started with the 2002 RPS, then that got bumped up again a couple of years later, then it got bumped up yet again. And then that all of that led to the, the 100, which also includes this last 40%. But that open it up for, for other uh, technologies, not just what was currently being used. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, and it's hard for us to, you know, to guess what kind of clean energy technology that we'll have in 2030. I mean, if you look at your phone and think about what will that look like in 12 years, it's hard to predict. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to close anything off. If there's some new technology that works really great and sort of does everything that you want it to do, we want to be able to use that. Um, as long as it's not contributing to uh, the, the climate crisis that we have. Mm -hmm. So who are some of the, again, again, who are some of the players in this? Uh, we talked a little bit last time about some of the, it, it sounds like you guys built a large and diverse coalition of supporters. So I'd like to hear about who some of those people are. And then also, you know, who are some of the, who are some of the groups and entities and people opposing this effort? Well, let me start off with the, you know, sort of really where all credit deserves to start. And that's with Senator DeLeon. I mean, he had the vision for this. Um, it's his name that's on the bill. He's the one who has been for years, his whole entire career in the state legislature has been dedicated to uh, climate issues, environmental justice issues. And he really deserves, you know, the credit for getting this stuff to happen. Um, a couple of other people who I think are sort of interesting players along is former state Senator Tom Hayden, um, who a lot of people might remember was obviously one of the great activist minds in um, centered in California, but of uh, student leaders in the 60s, author of the Port Huron Statement, um, you know, one of the uh, people who taught uh, the activists in the 60s how to be effective ran for state office here in California, was a state assembly member, was a state senator, and was in the first Brown administration, the head of California's solar power programs here in the state. And um, sadly, he, uh, he passed away in 2016, but it, but it was right before he died that he was actually talking to Senator DeLeon a lot about what were the next steps that could happen. And, and he really spent a lot of time talking to Senator DeLeon about how 100% was possible and how we could do it. And so um, e even though he's passed on, I, I really give Senator Hayden a lot of the credit for um, talking about this and having the vision for it. So even after he was gone, um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about renewable energy here in the state of California without talking about former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger who, as a Republican, really broke the mold in terms of how Republicans viewed 
clean energy, not only here in California, but I think around the whole country, and, and his strong support for the climate legislation that was passed, for the, um, for the million solar roofs bill that was passed, for um, SB uh, 350 that was passed, and all, all of those bills were passed and, and he signed. And even in SB 100, when we were fighting, um, uh, he wrote a letter, an open letter, um, to the state legislature that was so powerful that we had it printed in the LA Times. Um, wow. I think the day before the vote to really show sort of the transpartisan nature that has come out of clean energy. And this is no longer, you know, when, when we started to talk about this in, in 2000, 2001, solar power was still, you know, something for, you know, sort of Malibu millionaires or maybe people living off the grid. Um, and, and the job of the program there was really to move it from that to a mainstream program where people were, you know, where we would have real powerful businesses being able to come in to do it um, and people able to make money off of it, people able to save money because they were using clean energy. So I think it was Governor Schwarzenegger, obviously Governor Brown has talked about climate change for, you know, 40 or 50 years and has always been one of the leaders on, on programs like this. There was really a fantastic coalition that was put together um, that included Earth Justice and Vote Solar and NRDC and the Sierra Club and uh, CLCV and, and so many others, um, sort of mainstream, 350, uh, Fossil Free California. Uh, the environmental justice community probably played one of the most important roles in this bill. Um, the California Environmental Justice Alliance, also known as SEHA, the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, APEN, um, and, and so many of the groups around the state really ha were instrumental in making sure that, that we got what we needed to do. Um, the interfaith power and light and the religious community uh, came up. Mothers Out Front, um, a group of literally moms across the state who were coming up to lobby up here in California. Um, the business support was you know, outstanding from obviously people in the solar and wind industries uh, who, who were coming up and, and showing the amount of jobs that would be created, the unions, you know, and, and so we really had all the voices in California rowing in harmony on this. And that was able to defeat the special interests that were continuing to pound away and hold back on the bill, the fossil fuel industry, um, you know, sort of the main opponent on this, never want to see a shift to clean energy, especially as we're not only moving toward clean electricity, but at the same time, really starting to power all of our vehicles, trucks, buses, cars, trains, with electricity. Um, you know, we are, we are taking, albeit small steps, but steps in the right direction to really move us off of fossil fuels and to replace that with an economy that is powered by clean energy. And I think the main question is, do we do it in time? Mm hmm. Yeah. It, it were what were some of the arguments with the fossil fuel industry? And were there any times where you were testifying at hearings and running into those folks? Yeah, or, I mean, a lot of times that they often put up the issue of, you know, saying, oh, this is going to cost too much money. And it's, you, you know, you, you can go back and you can listen to a lot of their arguments. They're online. Um, they very rarely would testify, but often would get other people to come up and to testify 
for them. And I think that they knew that politically, the fossil fuel industry coming up and arguing against renewable energy looks like the buggy whip industry trying to lobby against cars at the turn of, uh, you know, of the last century. It just doesn't, you know, in a, in a place where um, appearance and framing are so important in politics and in the state capital, they had to do a lot of their work behind the scenes, campaign contributions, reports, lobbying, trying to do the vote counting that they were doing. But, you know, their main argument always came down to, um, you know, this is going to be bad for business here in California. And, you know, we need the fossil fuels in order to power our electricity and 100 percent is impossible. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how did you guys get it done? So you you've got the you've got legislators, organizations, businesses, unions. And then on the other side, you have the fossil fuel industry, which I assume are the coal fired power plants, uh, oil burning, you know, putting in their arguments, which I'm sure their arguments were a lot bigger back in 2002 when the first RPS got passed. I'm sure, you know, it was a little bit more touch and go. But I, I think it's interesting to just hear about that. But how did so the players are there, the stage is set. So how did you herd the cats? And I, I you know, I say you, I know there was a, a lot of people involved in this, but, you know, obviously your organization was one of the lead organizations out front in this thing. So, you know, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, it was, um, you know, both understand, it, I, I think it was really three things that came together. It was really a, a, knowing how to work the inside game. So who to talk to, when to talk to them, how the bill was going to come up. And Senator DeLeon's staff did an amazing job, really experienced folks there who knew how to work that inside system. I think the second was being able to work the outside game as well. So, you know, you have mentioned it and I've said it, you know, we had over 250 groups from all sectors of the economy coming in and supporting this bill. And then I think that the third, wow. and I, I don't want to underestimate this because I think it was really important, was that oftentimes when people talk about legislation, especially in Sacramento or in Congress, it just, it sounds very confusing. It's very convoluted. It's hard to sort of wrap your mind around it. And, and we tried really hard to make sure that the bill at its core was fairly simple and to run a hearts and minds campaign so that when you're talking to people, we're not getting into the renewable portfolio standard and the percentages, we're just saying hundred mm percent, -hmm. you know, and, and people go, Oh, right. A hundred percent. You go, yeah, this bill, you know, puts us on a path to, and people, Oh, okay. And, and then <laughs> from there, depending on who your audience is, you, you can get into a deeper and deeper, engagement and sort of get into it but you know we had hats. and even the bill was sb 100 it, it, and we had hats printed up that said a hundred percent that people loved and and people you, you know i i think oftentimes when outside groups part of the reason that they don't like to come to sacramento is because one it's it's sort of almost by definition you're going to have to go to an immediate compromise i mean that's what the process is set up to do but second is you know you come to Sacramento and all the love and, and attention and importance of a bill sort of gets sucked out of the room. And what you're left with is this weird language that doesn't make you feel very good. 
and and we tried really hard to make sure that when people talked about this bill that they could really focus on just saying look this is a bill about you know a hundred percent and that concept especially in light of sort of the federal government what's happening with the trump administration and and sort of the the all the backward steps that that he's putting us through this sort of looked like a real counter to that and um having a real positive vision something that that people could all sort of get behind obviously 100 percent, the concept is incredibly inclusive all of us are going to get there and uh, i think it was those three things you know really knowing how to run an inside game having the power and support of a lot of players on the outside but then running a campaign that's very simple to understand not because we didn't think people were smart enough to do it on the contrary every time people wanted to go deeper we would go deep with them but if you're trying to get to a mass of people you start with a simple concept that makes mm -hmm. people go hey wait a second what's that about well, let me mm -hmm. come in and learn a little mm -hmm. bit more here that seems interesting mm -hmm. okay then you take them the next step. okay here's how it works there's these two parts oh okay great oh who's supporting oh here's a whole list of supporters oh who's oh you know and you can walk people through it in a real comfortable way and they can keep opting in for more and more and more yeah that's great. Can you talk a little bit about the use of conference calls? It's a big state, and I think this is a challenge that advocates all over in different states have, which is, you know, how 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 do you lead it, and who leads it, and how do you get to a you? Everybody wants to get to a place where everybody's sort of on this, you know righteous harmony and everybody's sort of fulfilling a role and everybody's moving forward and i know we talked a little bit last time about the use of conference calls what were some of the things like that that helped you guys get it all together well i i think there were two things i mean the conference call is really just a tactic as a way to communicate but the strategy that we tried to employ on this one was to um let everyone's strengths bubble up and, and take advantage of people's different strengths in different parts of the state and, and different tactics. If some people were good at um, social media, some people might be good at doing the district meetings, some people might be good at writing the reports and figuring out a lot of the wonky stuff, in particular the Union of Concerned Scientists. We just knew that they were great at that. And so we just always wanted them to be the first group to sort of come out with the science and the facts and the figures on it. And it was so important. And that instead of trying to sort of bottleneck everything and have everything sort of run up into a, oh, there was one person who had to decide everything, we tried to use those conference calls just as a way to go, okay, if you're doing stuff on the outside, just tell us what it is so that we're not tripping over one another, but go and do it. And so 350 you're going to go do district meetings and other people would come in and say, oh, wait, I'm trying to organize something in that area too. Offline, they would come together and figure it out. Um, like I said, UCS would look at it and go, oh, there's some new science that's coming out on this. And we'd go, great, figure it out, get it back to us. And, and you take the lead on it. You be the key voice on it. So instead of trying to just, like I said, shuttle everything through a small point, we basically try to do the opposite and just say, if you're for the concept of trying to get to where this bill wants to take us, we're going to trust that your voice is a good one and that your organizing is sound. And we're not going to, we're here to help in any way that we can, but we don't want to close things up. We want to open them up. 
And so mm-hmm. we ran a, a campaign and, and, you know, all, and, and didn't worry about where the credit was going to go or sort of where things were going to sort of react to, but really tried to focus and allow people to go, Hey, I'm good at this. And I know I can have an impact. And, you know, again, I think that UCS critical with the science mothers out front, which has a really strong, powerful presence down in, in San Jose, they're really good at the organizing that they're doing. So instead of trying to put it into a, you know, environment, California mode of organizing or this kind of mode, we just said, well, go do it. That's awesome. Was the, how did you, so you're talking about giving out roles, not tasks on a real top down sort of way, like you mentioned last time. So how did, you know, if somebody said, I'm going to take on this role, how did, who was there to sort of follow through and see what was happening? And because a lot of times I'm sure you, 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 somebody says, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then it kind of falls off. Um, you know, I think the, the, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say crisis, but sort of the timing of the way a legislative campaign happens where there's very definite deadlines and timelines that have to be followed. It almost, I, I can't really think of a place where that happened because people would come in and say, oh, I'm going to do, you know, we would sort of talk about it and people would say, oh, do you think this will work? And we would talk about it on the call and people would go, yeah, I think so. That's, that's, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Can you do it? And people would then have to go in and go, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put these resources into it. And and others can join me and talk offline and da, da, da. And they would report back next week and say, yeah, I did it. Or it would be two or three weeks. It'd take, you know, a month. But people would come back and say, yeah, I did it. And if they didn't, we didn't have a lot of time to sort of go, oh, that sucks. Let's talk about it. It was just, okay, that didn't get done. Let's just go to the next thing that we think will. And there just wasn't a lot of time spent on what didn't happen, we wanted to spend all of our time on what needed to happen. Wow, that's great. Would you say that the conference call was your primary way to check in and yeah. update? Yeah, I mean, we had that. Vote Solar put together an amazing listserv. Uh, Earth Justice um, did a bunch of Twitter storms. We had a really good web page that was put together, again, sort of owned by a different group who was good at doing the social media. And, and um, you know, Ed, Everyone knew, email to Misha, and they will put up all of the information that goes, and we added it to the categories. So if you got new supporters, that went to Misha. If you got new media, Misha was looking at it, and they were putting it onto the website to make sure that it all worked out. And, you know, So it was a campaign website, and everybody had their logos on it? or Yeah, we, we although we put that on under the supporters page in the – page itself we tried to scrub of all logos so it just said 100 percent and wow. we tried to make it so it was sort of a logo free area where now everybody would feel bad if they came on and or you know if you came was on it late, a list but, would you list the organizations yeah yeah we yeah. had a whole list of supporters yeah, yeah, out yeah. there but you know we didn't try to go like oh this is the number one or this number we just said let's just alphabetic you know, order everybody's in this well and, whatever you know, for different or reasons just, and again it's you know in reality there weren't that many people going to the web page. <laughs> you know, we got, a lot of times in these campaigns, you kind of go like, oh, well, we need to, well, there's eight people go to the web page every month, so you don't have to freak out about that. <laughs> it but wasn't a place where legislators were going to, for information or media folks. It was I mean, a placeholder. 
again, I'll, I'll, th- there was some of that, but you know, we had such a good inside game going that we had a lot of lobbyists who knew the targets that we had. They were having face-to-face discussions with these targets, whether it was California Environmental Justice Alliance, whether it was APEN, whether it was CLCV, whether it was NRDC. You know, we knew who knew the people, and we let them go and have the conversations with them. And then we didn't have to go and lobby every single member. We didn't have to go and do every single press conference or every single district meeting. We try to play to the strength of the group and see how that would work. Yeah. So you thought you knew who in this greater group of supporters had the right relationships. You knew the inside track of in I say that in meaning <sighs> which legislators you needed to talk to to get the bill moving. That's great. Okay, so the the other questions I have are were there any were there any turning points? Were there any moments where you thought, man, I this thing's gonna get, you know, this bill's gonna get tucked away and tabled or any any you know moments where it was really touch and go? Yeah, I think the two key key moments were the end of the legislative session of 2017 when the bill didn't pass. It it had been on the floor of the assembly, was brought back into a particular committee. And I I need to give assembly member and chairman Chris Holden a lot of credit for, um, you know, taking that bill back and making sure it was in a, uh, uh, you know, organized enough and and put together in in a smart enough way that he held on to it. There was a lot of pressure from people saying, wait, why are you taking this bill back? But he did. I think ultimately it was the right thing to do. Um, but, you know, at that point, a lot of people said, oh, the bill's dead. You know, it'll never happen. That was a two-year session. It was the end of the first year. But, you know, sort of the word on the street was, ah, the bill's dead. And a lot of groups, you know, sort of dropped out of the coalition. But, but uh, you know, we just kept going. We just kept saying, you know, it, it isn't dead. Technically, it's not dead. It's a two-year session. We still got it. Let's just keep meeting every Monday at 9 o'clock. Let's just keep organizing. There's a vision here. Let's just keep pushing. And where there's a will, there's a way. Exactly. Legislators can revive a bill at any time legally. So why not? Within the two-year session, exactly. And so that was probably our lowest point. And then we we sort of took the turn when the bill got out of that committee, out of the Assembly Utilities and Energy Committee in the very beginning of July 2018. And all of a sudden, we were back to the races again. And they went on recess for the month of July, came back in August, and it was just a sprint, all-out sprint, to get the bill off the floor of the Assembly, onto the Senate, off the Senate, and onto the governor's desk and signed by the governor. And so, um, you know, we had been building up. Then, got, you know, the bill didn't pass in that first year. Boy, everybody was disappointed. We had to build up again. We got the bill out of the committee, and then a, just a straight-out race. That's great. So... So what I'm hearing is you folks, number one, you 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 found the you found a legislative champion, which a lot of times I see organizations that don't do that. And could you say could you say how important I mean, would this have happened if there was no legislative champion to really be the person to drive this on the inside? No, never would have happened. I mean, it was both because. He, you know, Senator DeLeon is so committed to the issue, um, but also, I mean, he has spent years um, 
in the assembly and in the state senate, and he knows the process. And his staff, particular his chief of staff, a guy by the name of Dan Reeves, knows, you know, has spent 20 plus years in the building, and you need people like that. And again, a lot of outside groups, they don't trust inside groups because they're like, oh, they're going to, you know, do something. But um, we put our faith in those guys, and they did it. And, you know, to get the bill off the floor, we needed the support of, um, you know, a couple of champions on the on the assembly because the senator, you know, it's it's hard for a senator to go in, onto the floor of the assembly and to lobby votes. And for Senator DeLeon, it was really hard. And we needed a champion. And we found that champion in Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher. And probably, you know, if, if the history book is ever written and, and they say, how did that bill get off the floor of the assembly? It'll be because that woman is an amazing legislator <laughs> and, and um, you know, is really a master of the floor of that assembly. The same way that um, Johnson, when he was the head of the Senate in Congress, you know, they called him the master of the Senate. She is the master of the assembly. How's that? Um, well, she knows how to count votes. She knows how to talk to people. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of pressure in those times when the bills come up and they're sitting on the floor and you don't get to 41. You need someone who who has both the smarts about the bill to be able to talk about the bill on the floor. You need them to understand the process that the bill is in. You need them to understand the politics. And they need to be, um, you know, smart enough to have a good relationship with a lot of people so that you're not just counting on one person to get to 41 but you can count on 10 or 15 people to get to 41. And then there's some people who you go, you know, maybe this isn't the right bill for you to vote on for your district or for whatever the election you have coming, give them a pass and concentrate on others. And she did it so well that if there's not a book written about it soon, someone should get on it right away. What is her name again? Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher, Assembly District 80 down in San Diego. Very cool. So you folks had the... You, you had the inside game working, which was, which was, which is awesome. You built a, a large coalition of organizations, unions, companies you, that is clear. And then it sounds like you did a great job of delegating roles or not even delegating, just finding people to fill in roles without micromanaging every single task and letting people sort of run with what they were best at. Yeah, I think, you know, you said it before, when you have a state the size of California, fifth, sixth largest economy in the world, and you're running a statewide campaign, uh, you know, and you have limited resources and trying to get other things done, too. You just need to let people come in and say, this is what I'll do and let them do it. Yeah. Well, very cool. Uh, it's an awesome story. I love it. You know, California is uh, unique in so many ways, and I, I appreciate you taking uh, your valuable time to, to chat with, you know, this us on this podcast. I We come across organizations all of the time who are confused and afraid when it comes to lobbying and advocacy. We've tried to write up documents that explain, hey, if you're a 501c3, you are legally allowed. You don't have to be afraid to go talk to legislators and you don't have to have a beautifully mapped out game plan 
in order to start an advocacy effort. Just you know, at some point you want to get there, but just get in there and start doing it. And that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast was to just give people ideas and tell stories about how people have done it. Uh, do you have any parting sort of, you know, anecdotal or whatever words of wisdom to for people who are thinking about dipping their toe into um, grassroots advocacy and lobbying? Well, I, I think the advice that you just gave right there is sort of perfect. I mean, remember, nobody knows how to do anything when they start and it's it, it and it often leads to the biggest successful programs. I mean, um, no one knows how to play music or how to be in a band when they start. And yet some of our best bands in the world start in garages from a bunch of guys and gals just playing together and they like it and they keep doing it and they figure it out as they go along. Uh, it's the same with businesses. It's the same with so much of the social change movements that's happened is, you know, people have a desire to see something fixed. They want to make a change and that's how they talk about it. And I actually think talking about it at that level of what you want to do and how you want to get it done is the best way to talk about it. Don't, the bills will follow. <laughs> Build the outside first, the inside game and politics in Sacramento or Washington, DC, that, that will come. But if you're not focused on the outside game and building up the power of the outside game, then you're never going to be able to get it. That's great. Well, hey, thanks again. Congratulations. Uh, and thanks for the podcast, but also thanks for getting this bill done. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dan Jacobson. Okay.